Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our special guest again on this show is Jonathan Courtney, CEO of AGN Smart and the author of the Workshopper Playbook, and we're going to talk about workshops today. This episode is brought to you by Encrypt.me, the ideal VPN service for teams. Working remotely calls for tighter cybersecurity. Encrypt.me for Teams covers all of your company's privacy needs by securing your business network and providing essential privacy tools. Sign up at encrypt.me slash UIBreakfast and save 25% on your initial subscription. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Jane. Thanks a lot for having me on again. Uh, Super excited. We're absolutely thrilled. You have a whole new book that just came out in the middle of the crisis. And (laughs) let's talk about all of that now. What's the story behind Agent Smart? And how did you end up focusing on workshops so much to write a book about? Yeah, so first of all, we started as a traditional web design kind of company. You know, we were making websites for people. We were sort of doing random stuff. But uh, we did actually kind of ride the first wave of UX. So pretty much within like the first month, we swapped our name to AJ and Smart UX Design Agency. We got super lucky because this was like 10 years ago. And a lot of the companies here in Berlin, a lot of the startups were just getting started and we were one of the only UX companies here and so we just basically got to work on every possible imaginable thing that was starting up here and for the first like six years of AJ and Smart we were pure UX pure UI it was super fun but there was also like this underlying permanent frustration that myself and my co-founder felt that like every time and you you've probably felt this and, and I'm sure your listeners have felt this Every time like we would get a new client and it would be like a cool company, I won't mention, but whatever, it, like it would be a cool company and we're super excited and we're like, oh, this is going to be the one. This is going to be amazing. And within about two weeks, it would always be the same. It's like, oh, God, we're stuck on this project now. Like it's already the same things that always start to happen are happening. You know, we've had our first meeting and we've had our first kickoff and no one really knew what they really wanted. And that's fine because that's our job and we'll try to help them figure it out. But, you know, one week later, we come back and show them some of the sketches or the wireframes. And that's actually not what they were talking about. So we have another meeting and different people are in this meeting. And actually their goal is different than we expected. And now things have changed in that week. And now we go away and make more screens. We come back, we present it. Actually, you know, the meeting's been canceled because there's going to be this other meeting. And then we have another two-hour meeting about something. And it just it just felt like we weren't really doing UX design work. We were just kind of playing the weird company politics of whatever company we were working for and whichever company was our client. And it just felt like super frustrating every time we would do one of these projects. I got super sick of it. It just didn't matter whether it was a startup or a corporate. It just didn't matter. It was always the same. And this kind of like fatigue would start to kick in after a few weeks. At the most, it would take eight weeks before I was like, oh God, I just can't wait for this project to be over. I'm so (laughs) sick of it, even though it's the coolest thing I've ever worked on. And, you know, then the end of the project, there would be no real end. It would just sort of, you know, you just, even though officially... Taper out. Yeah, it would taper out. Exactly. There was no like, yeah, we're finished. This is the end of the project. It would taper out. No one is satisfied. 
And the client, you know, we think they're really unsatisfied in that we've done a really bad job, but then they book us again because they've actually had a really good experience. And overall, the experience of making products just seems to suck. And so myself and my co-founder, we tried different things. We learned design thinking. You know, we went and took a lot of training for design thinking and we started doing that with our clients. And it was like, okay, so this is interesting. This is helping us align a little bit better on, you know, some of the things that take a while to figure out if you're just doing a project without a workshop. And then we, we started doing like business model canvas. You know, we basically learned these things that we thought would help us with the start of the project problem, because that seems to be where the problem is. It's just getting everyone on the same page, deciding what the hell we actually want to do, and then letting us go away and actually do our work and then, you know, not have to have a change every two seconds. And during this process, we, you know, it didn't really change anything. It, it slightly improved how we worked, but it actually made us realize even more that nobody knows what to do in the product world, including us. Like design thinking, you know, we would go into companies who've spent millions on design thinking training and the personas would be up on the wall and, you know, the the user stories are everywhere. And it's like, why the hell did we spend so much money and so much time working on this design thinking project when it still didn't affect the fact that the project is still all over the place and just doesn't feel like it's just doesn't feel like how it's supposed to feel, which was my imaginary world of, you know, you start a project, everyone is on the same page and now I can go and do my creative work. Okay, long story short, myself, my co-founder were on a flight to one of our clients, Lufthansa. We were about to do like a project for them. I brought a book with me because I've been following the blog. Actually, both of us brought this book with us. We've been following this blog. It was Jake Knapp's blog on the Google Ventures design website. So it was, GV, it was like GV design, I don't know. And it was one of the Google's like venture capital arm. And so anyway, I was reading his blog and eventually he brought out a book called Sprint. I read it and uh, you know, I actually had the book with me for a few days before reading it. I brought it on the flight. I read it and... That was the moment that everything clicked into place for me. I was like, wait a second, this is the missing piece of the puzzle. This is the thing that actually is going to get all of our clients on board so that we can get to a first version of the product and not have to go around in circles for months and months and months and months. And honestly, we landed in Frankfurt. We had a presentation for Lufthansa. We completely changed it and presented this design sprint idea to them. And they were nice enough and open-minded enough to let us run a sprint with them. We did a test sprint with another company here in Berlin called N26, but it wasn't like a strict sprint. Our first strict sprint was with Lufthansa. And by the way, this project we were doing with them wasn't an easy one. It was, you know, Lufthansa is a huge company. It's a big corporate. There were a lot of things which weren't clear, but the design sprint in one week got us to a point of clarity that normally would have taken us six months. And that was the moment where I was just like, you know what? We're not doing any UX projects anymore without starting it with a design sprint. And that was 2016. And, and since that sprint in March 2016, we've never not done a sprint with a client again. And sorry, I know I'm talking almost at the point of the question you asked me. And the point of the, the reason why the design sprint worked so well is that it's a system it's a problem-solving and decision-making system that you can use to bring a group of people together and just make decisions and then get to a prototype. And we started to realize that you know, once a client would do a sprint with us, they would ask us to, hey, all of our C-level suite are meeting next week and they're having this retreat and we were going to do like a blah, 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 blah. Can you come and run 
like a mini sprint with us to help us make some decisions. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess so. And that's when I put together an exercise called Lightning Decision Jam, which is basically like a two to three hour mini sprint. And that actually ended up being the thing that clicked with corporates more than anything else and, and got quite famous in like the corporate world as a workshop. And honestly, just it went on and on and on. We kept creating more custom workshops for clients. We kept running more decision-making problem uh, projects for clients. And over time, we just slowly, naturally became a company that does 80% workshops and 20% actual product design. And that's where we are today. <laughs> that's such an impressive story. I would like to point our listeners to the previous episode your previous appearance on the show a year or so ago, which was about design sprints in particular. So give it a listen. It's one of my favorites over of the history of the whole podcast. So definitely a must listen. Today, we're going to talk about your book. And let's just spend a few minutes talking about the unusual distribution format that you picked. It's called the Workshopper Playbook. And it's somewhat free, but not exactly. And you're distributing it yourself. How are you doing it? Okay, so Workshopper Playbook, basically, yeah, it's my first book. And our distribution method is probably, like you said, it's maybe even more interesting than the book. <laughs> so here's what happens. We buy the book. We physically buy the, the book ourselves from the printer, which costs us approximately uh, 14 euro per copy. And we then store it, we pay for storage, and we sell it on our own website for free plus shipping. Meaning the actual copy of the book itself is free. You just have to pay for the shipping. And that depends on which country you're living in. But it's always cheaper than actually buying the book itself. So it's always under $10. And the reason we decided to do that, it's not because we're like the nicest company in the world and we want everything to be free. Well, the reason we did it is similar to why we have, you know, a YouTube video every week. You know, we have a free YouTube video every week and no one asks us why we're doing that. Well, the reason is it gets people into our universe and, you know, we get to build up like this fan base of people who really like our content. And if the content is valuable enough, then maybe 1% of the people watching will purchase something that we have to offer. And so the book is the exact same concept. We want, and, and so by the way, on our YouTube channel, our goal is as many people as humanly possible should watch our channel. That's the goal, obviously, because if a million people watch our channel, then maybe 10,000 people might buy something from us or a client might, you know, a lot of our clients come through our YouTube channel because they watch a video on design sprints or something. And they're like, oh my God, these, are, these seem like the guys who do design sprints. I'm going to call them. The book is the exact same concept. So you buy the book, you pay for the shipping which lowers the friction. So like pretty much everybody on the planet can afford to get this book, well, wherever we ship to. And then there's two things that happen. One, there's upsells. So like bonus upsells. The concept of upsells, I think, is clear to people. Like basically you can add more stuff to the book if you want to. For example, there's a video course version of the book if you don't want to, if you want like a extra layer of detail there's like um, another book that you can get with it, a bonus, which is basically 100 exercises. So you don't have to Google for different exercises every time you're making your own workshop. The book itself is about how to design custom workshops. And there's bonuses that basically make that easier for you. They're all optional. So you know many people will just get the book and, and that's it. 
But, you know, what we've already seen is that, you know, someone at a company will buy this book, will read it, will love it. It will change something, you know, that it will change something that they thought they knew about, like making products and, and change their mind about it. And then they'll call us and then they'll book us. So it's and, and then maybe that booking gets us 100,000 euro, which is more important to us than getting the 10 euro for the book. Right. So for us, the book is free. You pay for the shipping. There are bonuses which you can take or you don't have to take. But the goal in the end is that you love the book. And then one day in the future, in 10 years, you buy something from us because you love the content that we put out. And yeah, so the the book is is free for now. And and we're only doing a limited amount of free copies because it is kind of a logistical nightmare for us because we are doing all of the... <laughs> we've had to increase our support team quite a lot because of the book. You know, we've sold now 5,000 copies and it means that everyday people are asking, hey, my, you know, the usual things you would... You know, we don't have Amazon as our backend. So people are like hey, you know, I ordered the book. When is it shipping? And then we have to manually check. And it's like, okay, so your book will be there in like four days or blah, blah, blah. So yeah, we're not going to do this forever because it's, it's you know, logistically not possible for us to do it. So at a certain point, we'll just throw it on Amazon. But yeah, so for the first like, I think like 10,000 copies, we want to do it all ourselves and just see, you know, how that experiment plays itself out. And so far, it's been surprisingly successful, even though we launched it right in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> I mean, nobody saw that coming, but definitely the book about workshops during a pandemic, it's its a bit <laughs> ironic. <laughs> Good, yeah. <laughs> uh, so before anyone asks that question, can you do workshops remotely before we even start on the whole discussion? Yeah, absolutely. So we're lucky that, you know, 90% of the workshops that we run were always remote because our whole company here is based in Berlin, Germany. But 90% of our clients are based in the US. So, you know, a huge amount of our workshops were always remote. So this book doesn't really, it doesn't say you have to be in the same room. And we have a lot of content to go with it that shows you how to do it remotely as well. We've got hours of video and written content about how to translate all of that into uh, remote workshop running. But yeah, the book itself doesn't distinguish between remote and non-remote. We don't have as much time to fit the content of your entire workshopping wisdom, but maybe we can get our listeners familiar with the key principles and ideas, and then they can go ahead and learn more on their own. So what are the basic principles of using workshops in your design work? What I want people to know is that a workshopper, so the, the whatever you want to call it, like a workshop consultant or a decision-making consultant or whatever, is a person who has the skill to bring a group of people together without very much context and help them unlock their superpowers, help them get their work done faster and better than they ever would before. So your goal as a workshopper and the first real principle is that you're not the hero, you're not the person going in and actually doing the work. By the way, you can be both, but the core is that you're not the person going in and doing the work, you're the guide. You're the person who helps guide people through a process and helps them get things done in a faster, easier, more pleasant, less frustrating way. And what that means, you know, at AJ and Smart is that instead of starting straight into the designs process and the designers having to deal with all the politics and the mess, the workshopper, so the person at AJ and Smart who leads the workshop, 
gets rid of all of that so that you just focus on what's important. So the big kind of idea behind being a workshop consultant, workshopper, again, the name is still so new that there's no real name for it. The really big idea is that you're the guide. You're the person who helps other people get their work done in a better, less frustrating, less busy work, less annoying way so they can actually do what they were paid to do. Now, for me, when I'm workshopping, as I am also a UX designer, like I also take part in the design and concept phase, but I'm still very focused on making sure that everyone else can really get their work done faster and better than everyone else, uh, faster and better than they ever would without a workshop. So that's more like the big idea. The basic elements of a workshop, I mean, essentially what a workshop is, a workshop is just a bunch of exercises stuck together and customized in a way that your client needs, depending on what your client needs to get done. So for example, if you're a UX designer, often you'll be part of a kickoff workshop. Often a product manager will be the person who's doing that kickoff workshop. If you learn how to be a workshopper, you're the person who will do that kickoff workshop. You're the person who will facilitate that kickoff workshop, even if you don't know anything about the product and even if you don't have any context. And that's the really interesting thing. Whereas before, you know, we would go into a company, you know, like we would, the Lufthansa case, we would have gone into Lufthansa and then we would have asked the product manager to run the session for us so that, and we would just sit there and take notes and we would be the executors and we would just be, you know, the people, we're, we're just getting the task given to us. Whereas today we go into the room, we set up the room, we set up the workshop, we set the agenda. And that automatically puts you in a very different position. It puts you in a position of leadership. So even though you're not, you know, the person coming up with all of the ideas and solutions, you're sort of automatically seen as the VIP in the room. And you're automatically seen as a person who can help everyone else get their work done faster. And what's really interesting is, you know, let's say there's five people from your client's team in that room. One of these people is going to say, oh my God, how did we ever work anywhere any other way than this? And then they'll bring you into <laughs> their team and then the next team will do that. And you spread through a company like a virus. No, maybe a virus is a bad thing to say these days. <laughs> you spread through the company like a STD. I don't know. <laughs> and it's basically, you basically have a, you know, you have this very different position once you become a workshopper. And, you know, like I said, a workshop is just a basic set of exercises put together in a specific order. And in the book, The Workshopper Playbook, I show you exactly how to build workshops, any type of workshop. If you want to build a kickoff workshop, strategy workshop, brainstorming workshop, decision-making workshop, problem-solving workshop, it doesn't matter. There is a basic framework for building workshops that you'll learn in this book. And it will take you like one and a half hours to read and you'll then be able to create workshops for any type of company. It doesn't matter if it's like a, you know, hey, we need to do a retreat. Can somebody... Yes, I can do it. You know, hey, we need to run a, work a strategy workshop. I can do it. You know, like it's really a very robust framework that teaches you how to run, how to run workshops. But a workshop in theory is just a specific set of time with a specific set of exercises with a specific goal at the end and a facilitator. And that's essentially it. I know you asked for something, a more simple answer, and I rambled for a little <laughs> bit, but I hope that kind of filled it all in. 
I'm loving this active approach because as designers, we always come in and we sort of, well, the ideal situation would be to just say nothing and listen, but how can you be a leader when you say nothing and listen? And your approach allows you to become this active, knowledgeable person that doesn't pretend to know everything, but they do know their process well. And that's so great. You touched on something there that I never thought about, but I used to think that I had to pretend that I knew everything about the product. I used to think that I had to pretend that to be taken seriously. Or, you know, if if somebody asks me something that I didn't really know, I would maybe sometimes maybe lie and pretend that I saw the thing that they're talking about. Whereas as a workshopper, I can be honest and say, hey, I'm here to guide you through a better way of working. But I'm not here as somebody who knows what's exactly going on. And what that allows you to do is also work in a lot of different companies and a lot of different departments on things that you maybe wouldn't be comfortable working on as a straight up UX or UI designer. Well, the original question, uh, so I, to be honest, I do have a copy of your book in front of my eyes. So I, <laughs> I was hoping to hear the principles that start with together alone and the key concepts that are not obvious to us mere mortals when we start <laughs> because we think that a workshop, everyone comes together and we kind of do something together, but not so much. Tell us more. In the book itself, we talk about three principles that you can pretty much apply to every workshop. And the the first one is also coming from our biggest learning from the design sprint is that, you know, normal meetings, everyone talks together, everyone speaks over each other. It's a lot of noise, you know, because people think brainstorming is about everybody talking and sharing information. But we think workshops should take this together alone philosophy and principle where you know, you as the workshopper set the goal for people, you tell them how to do the exercise, but people do not speak to each other in the workshop. And if they do, it's extremely structured and extremely carefully orchestrated. So together alone means you're all working together in the same room, but you're actually working on your own thing. And the best result of this or the best example is when you're coming up with a concept for a new product or a new feature, if you use the standard way of doing things, then eventually, you know, it's just the person who's the best at sales pitches or the loudest in the room, you know, their idea might actually win. And that's the thing you end up bringing to the market because just that's how conversations work. And it's really hard to keep track of everything. If everyone works on a concept alone without sharing anything, and then at the end, you see all the concepts, you have a much broader range of ideas to actually choose from. And that also then brings me to, so there are like three principles in this book. And the the second principle is that everything is anonymous. So now that everyone's worked together alone to create some concepts and create some ideas, you know, you stick them up on the wall or depending on what workshop it is. And essentially you're saying, we're not going to tell whose concepts these are. We're not going to tell whose ideas these are. We're not going to tell whose you know concerns these are, whatever type of workshop it is, because that will affect the outcome. If you know that the boss drew this or the, this is the boss's idea, maybe people will lean more towards that or the opposite. Maybe they'll lean away from it because they don't like the boss. Whereas in a workshop, you <laughs> want to keep things anonymous so that they're unbiased. And I'm not just talking about the usual thing people hear about bias, like gender, race, whatever. Just in any normal situation, there is bias. Like 
I don't like this person because they didn't, you know, give me back my money I paid for lunch or something. So I wouldn't choose their concept no matter what. Or this person's an intern. They're an idiot. They won't know. So I won't choose their concept no matter what. But if everything is anonymous, you don't even have to have those conversations. And the final like kind of key, you know, to running workshops. And this is something you also need to be aware of, especially if you're working with, you know, people who are not designers, people who are product people, people who are business people, is that creativity is not like the core of a workshop. You don't need to be creative to actually be part of a workshop. The reason is the facilitator, you know, creates exercises and and creates a workshop that just forces creativity out of people without them having to be creative. You know, clients will travel to us on a Sunday from like New York and then Monday they're already working and they're super tired. They're the opposite of creative, but they still come up with really interesting solutions because of the systems we build. So we just don't rely on creativity when it comes to running these workshops. So those are like three principles from the book that you pretty much see in every single workshop that we create this together alone, everything is anonymous and don't rely on creativity. And with those three things, you can pretty much, you know, there's, there's really no limit to the types of workshops you can run. Can you give us an overview of the four C's framework that is essentially the structure of every workshop you run? So the four C's, um, so you definitely have the book. <laughs> so the first yes, yes, I'm cheating. I know. <laughs> so the, yeah, I just the... <laughs> want to make the best of this recording. <laughs> no, 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 it's great. So the four C's is the core of the entire book, and basically, it's the thing that you can. It's the framework you can use to design your own custom workshops, and it's also cool because it's the frame you can deconstruct other people's workshops and reverse engineer other people's workshops using this framework as well. If you want to know how someone else's workshop was built. You can reverse engineer it using the 4Cs framework. Essentially, the 4Cs framework is the very clear four-step process that we use for building every single workshop. The 4Cs stands for collect, choose, create, and commit. And I'll really quickly go through them. So, But just to give you a broad idea, that is the framework that almost every workshop on the planet follows. It's like, you know, every story has a beginning, middle and end or whatever. This is like every workshop has collect, choose, create and commit. And, you know, design thinking has its like five circles. I, I can't even remember what they are. I just made a video on it recently, but they're really hard to remember and they're very designy. So what I wanted to do is make it easy as hell to remember how to do this. It's actually funny that I don't remember the five circles of design thinking right now. It's like empathy, empathize, test, some some prototype. I, I don't know. I don't remember. I will link to them in the show notes. That's not a problem. <laughs> exactly. But that's what I mean. It's like, it's very difficult to remember things like this, which were created by designers because they created almost for themselves. And it's like very, it's just not really compatible with non-designers. And the 4Cs framework for me, I wanted to create something that's almost dumb. It's almost stupid because it's so easy and that it's it's so easy it seems like it shouldn't actually work but it does so collect you know the start of every workshop is really about information collection and this is where the team comes together gathers challenges ideas data inspiration and basically just kind of visualizes everything so you try to visual as as the workshopper you try to visualize all the conversations and data that have been collected on the walls or on a miro board or whatever 
The next step is choose. And choose is basically focusing on what you're going to focus on for the workshop and what we're going to work on. And also deciding on what we'll ignore. Because that's one of the things that's often a big problem when people sit down together and have a meeting is you keep talking about things which are not really out of uh, in scope because nobody knows what the scope is. So in the choose section, you basically decide on the scope you know, which part of the product are we focusing on? You know, like, what is the time scale of this? Like, what are we really working on? That's what you're doing in the choose phase. Number three is create. And once you've actually decided what to work on, here is where you come up with ideas and solutions for what you could actually do. That could be sketches, that could be wireframes, that could just be written ideas, that could be business models. It can pretty much be anything, but this is the kind of, you know, creative section, even though it's not creative. And the final step is commit and you know, a workshop is useless without actionable takeaways. So the commit phase is basically saying, this is the solution we're going to prototype. These are the features we're going to test. This is who's going to do them. That's it. Goodbye. <laughs> and so having that really... Yeah. So basically, those are the four C's. And in this book, I'll show you how to use those four C's to build your own workshops. And I give an example a detailed example of building a workshop using the four C's so that you basically know exactly how to do it yourself. Can we slightly talk about the tools and definitely in person, but also considering these days, the tools we can use to run workshops remotely? We've always used, used to be called real-time board back in the day. Actually, we talked about this the last time I was on your podcast. And I know this because I checked the show notes and it said real-time board. <laughs> and I was like, oh. They're called Miro. Yeah, exactly. They're called Miro. So today it's, um, we say Miro, but my, I, no one really knows what it's called. It could be. Every... I'm not sure either. Yeah. <laughs> so today we're using Miro. We've been using that for about three years now, uh, back when it was called Real Time Board. They've released a template gallery, and we've even, we have some free templates inside Miro as well, which you can use. So there's no excuse. You just need to get Miro, get your free account. And this is really an amazing way to run remote workshops. We use Miro and Zoom in combination, and that's all you need, basically. We also have a crazy, insane 54-page remote guide on exactly how to do this. Actually, I didn't even think about sharing this, but if you go to ajsmart.com forward slash remote design sprints, you can just download the guide for free. It's 55 pages long, and it shows you how to do these workshops completely remotely, including what we would recommend as an equipment setup for your desk. Literally everything in ridiculous, nerdy detail there's also videos on this page. This is 100% free, no catch. Um, you have to enter your email address, but there's <laughs> that's so we can send you the link. There's no upsell. There's literally nothing. You just get the guide and that's it. So yeah, that guide will teach you everything you need to know about how to do everything remotely. But yeah, we use Miro and most of our workshops are remote. And right now, all of them are remote. Since we have limited time, there are specific workshops that might be useful to our listeners. Maybe we can pick one. Uh, let's say a large part of our audience are working on SaaS products and web applications. Maybe you can think of one very common workshop that would be useful for them on a daily basis with their client work or when they're working on their own product. Yeah, so one of the most useful products, uh, honestly, I would go back to Lightning Decision Jam, which is also called LDJ. You can also go to ajsmart.com forward slash LDJ and get the entire free 
video course, downloadable everything on exactly how to do that workshop. Again, all free, no catch, whatever. So that's the LDJ workshop. And what you can do in this workshop is you can use it to prioritize features for a new product. You can use it to decide on new features for a new product. You can use it to build your backlog for your clients or for the development team. It's a really, really robust product workshop that can almost be used in any product scenario. We initially designed it at the very, very start as a way to help build a backlog for digital products. It's like the most robust and reusable workshop of all time. Can we take the use case of prioritizing new features yeah. and just briefly recap the stages so we can get the sort of feeling of presence in the room? Let's say you're doing a workshop and the specific point of it was to prioritize features. First of all, that means you already know which features exist. So it means that you would be able to write out all of the features and stick them up on a board. So basically what this would look like inside Miro would be, you know, let's say 20 features listed out or presented as post-its. That's how we do it in Miro, but you can do it whatever way you want. So essentially a list. Potential features, potential features. Potential features, exactly. So mm -hmm. in this case, we're assuming we've skipped a step where we've figured out what features could exist, but you know, whatever. So we've got a list of potential features, but we don't know what the prioritization is, which ones should be worked on first, etc. Which Which ones should be in the MVP? Maybe that's an easy task. So then what we would do is give everybody, and the amount of dots is something that's relatively easy to calculate, but let's say we give everybody five dots or five voting dots, then we'll anonymously vote on which features that we individually think should be prioritized higher. Like So if, if I think that the wish list is extremely important from my perspective, then maybe I would even put two dots or three dots on that one. Now you can choose to do anonymous voting, which means that you can't see where people are putting the votes, or you can do open voting, where you can see where people are putting the votes, but they're still anonymous by the end because you don't really know who put what where. And actually, we recommend open voting because even though it affects other people's decisions because you can see where people are putting the dots, that's kind of supposed to happen because we're simulating a conversation but just doing it in silence. So it's okay if you see that three people have put two dots on one of them. It actually might draw your attention to it and you might rethink your decision. So at the end, what you do is the facilitator puts all of those in order of which ones have the most votes, which is very simple. Just click and drag. And the top voted feature might be I don't know. Yeah, the wish list. The second one might be a share button. The third one, whatever. It doesn't matter. You have like, let's say out of the 25 features, you maybe have like eight of them that are now at the top of the list and in order of priority. Now, that's not when you're finished. There's one more step. And that step is putting these on an effort impact scale, which a lot of people who run agile sprints, actually the developers will have seen this before. And essentially what you do as the, as the facilitator is you work with the team to put these features on an effort impact scale. So how much effort do we think it will take to execute this feature? Meaning how long do we think this is like a three-month thing, a six-month thing? Uh, by the way, I'm like the, if you want this visualized, like I said, ajsmart.com forward slash LDJ, the video is there of how to do it. But basically, once you have all of those features on this scale, 
then you can see not just which ones the team thinks are important, but also which features are also feasible and which ones are also important. So basically, in the end of that super quick workshop, instead of having a discussion for three hours about which features, you can now start the discussion already with these features laid out on an effort impact scale so that even if there are disagreements now from this point, at least you have something to point at and to refer to. So that's what I would do to prioritize features. As a side note, since I run my own product together with my co-founder, there's been multiple situations in over the last few years when we'd have like we would do some exercises. We would set up criteria rankings and like um, ice scores, which is similar to effort impact. But we would calculate the scores, yeah, and then just agree that we want to just differently. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have no idea, but right. it definitely helped to just lay out everything that was super helpful. But in the end, uh, there is something else, like an intangible sentiment that like was enough to overthrow the logical decision in favor of like what our intuition says, our product intuition. So. Yeah. And I think that's really okay, you know, to follow your intuition when you have a small team. When you're working with a big team at a corporate, it can be difficult to rely on intuition because there's so many power struggles happening in the room at the same time. And my job as a workshopper is to break through all of these power struggles and unspoken <laughs> allegiances and all of this weird Game of Thrones stuff that's going on in the background. And these sort of exercises help to level the playing field and to make the... Basically, it helps visualize the conversation so that even if we decide to go with someone's gut feeling, at least we all know that that's what has happened and it's, you know, because in, in many times in, in startups or corporates, when there's a bigger team, people can pretend that it was a logical decision, but it definitely wasn't. But here you can at least say, here, yeah, here you can at least say, well, that wasn't logical, but that's fine. As we're wrapping up today's episode, how can our listeners who are practicing UX design daily basis start introducing workshops in their client work? Like, let's say yesterday they didn't do any of that. They just took their, you know, specs doc and like turned out screens as we all do. And now they want to like transition to this workshop role. How do they go around it? So the best way to start is to start very small, very simple, and with a very little commitment from your client side needed. So what I would say is the next time you have a maybe kickoff workshop about a new product, or maybe it's a retrospective with a client that you've been working with, or maybe it's just your next meeting where you're deciding on the next features to go into the product, I would suggest to them that you run a... And I wouldn't say workshop, I would say like product or feature prioritization session or strategy session or vision setting session, something like that. Use the LDJ workshop and honestly, they'll be hooked. They will want you to do that from now on. So that's what I would do. And, and what most people did are like people who've been telling us over the years they often use it as the retrospective. So like if you're working in agile sprints with your clients, there's a retrospective either every Friday or every second Friday. And usually the developer or the scrum master will run this. And I often suggest that the designer offers to run it, like volunteers to run it and wants to test out a different way of running it. 
And most scrum masters or product managers who are running these are happy to have someone take it off them, you know, one of those Fridays. And it's just a good way to test it out. That's really good advice. Uh, I'm always envious I don't do client work anymore. I just want to give it a try. <laughs> it's definitely there's place for that in, in small teams, right? Of course. Within the existing product. Well, that's that's fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing your advice today. This is a great angle we can all take up in our daily activities. Where can people head over to get that book and learn more? So for the book, workshopper.com forward slash book. That will get you to the Workshopper Playbook. So workshopper.com forward slash book. If you somehow don't remember that link or don't go to the show notes, you can just go on any of our channels and we'll be talking about it. You know, Instagram or YouTube, AJ and Smart. You won't miss it. We're very loud on social media. You've probably all seen our ads and are already annoyed about them anyway. So you'll <laughs> you'll know where to find us and, <laughs> and we'll you'll be able to find the book. Or of course, you can also check Amazon in July. Is there a way to get a digital copy for those who are not fans of paper distribution? No. So we very specifically made a choice not to do an ebook. And the reason is we think that this is a book you want to have with you when you're designing workshops, when you're running workshops, when you're working with clients. And I just very specifically and stubbornly decided not to do it, even though financially it would be better for AJ and Smart for us to do this ebook because it would have the same effect, you know. People would buy it on the website. They wouldn't even have to pay the shipping. We wouldn't have to pay the 14 euro. We wouldn't have to have the logistical nightmare. But for now, we're not going to do an ebook. And the reasons are more artistic <laughs> than anything else. We've sent you an ebook because you're like a special person. You're an influencer, but we're not sending it to the general public. Thanks so much. Yes, I do have. Please don't share a label on it. Uh, I feel honored <laughs> now. Well, uh, thanks again. I hope this book project is a blast for you. Hope the pandemic doesn't affect your business as much and uh, good luck. Thank you so much, Jane. I really do appreciate you having me on the podcast again. And I really loved all the questions. And I hope I'm on again next year. <laughs> It's our pleasure. Thanks again. I hope you have a great rest of the week. And here's another product featured in our Help Founders section. Scatterspoke is an online retrospective tool for agile teams. It gives them tools and data to improve the way they inspect their practices. So you can create a culture of continuous improvement, rapid experimentation and change for the better. Head over to scatterspoke.com to learn more. If you'd like your product to be featured for free on multiple awesome shows, welcome to apply at helpfounders.com. <laughs> <laughs>